yeah, so it's very frustrating, right? You, you call a broker and they either don't call, they don't pick up or they don't return your call or you send an email and there's crickets and um, even the ones that you, you do get on the phone with or get a face-to-face with, they tell you, yeah, yeah, great. And I wrote your criteria down and then they disappear and you never hear back from. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hello and welcome to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories, the show for passive investors where we share what real estate investing is really about. Have you ever bought a property from an owner that was overly attached to their property? Well, this is exactly what happened to Joseph Gozlan, a real estate investor from Dallas. He will take us on a journey and share what he learned from his experience. It's a great story and I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. And today I have with me Joseph Gozlan on the show. Uh, Joseph is a multifamily investment specialist who leads group acquisitions of over $30 million in real estate. He also provides asset management services to a portfolio of over 500 units. Joseph lives in Plano, Texas, but he's a former lieutenant in the Israeli Defense Forces. Joseph also has over 17 years of leadership experience in the software industry, where he successfully led engineering teams as a senior software development manager. Joseph has a BS in Information Systems Engineering and is also currently enrolled with the Texas A&M MBA program. Hey, Joseph, it's great to have you on the show today. Hey, thank you for having me. Of course, absolutely. Uh, I find it really interesting that you moved from Israel to Texas. When when was that? Yeah, that was back in 07. Um, Like you said, I was in the software industry and my company had a um, branched over here in Plano. So we kind of got the opportunity to relocate. And um, it's funny how things work out. Uh, we love Plano, Texas. It's, it's a great place to live in. And we the timing was also perfect because we came in in 2007 when everything around us was just, real estate-wise, was going up in flames. Yeah. So, and we were... Uh, um, we were able to kind of realize that this is probably the best market of our lives to get into real estate investment. So that was just great opportunity for us. It's interesting what you just said that you realized when everything was was actually falling apart around you when it comes to real estate and you realized that that was the best time to get into real estate. Can you walk me through your state of mind? Because I know a lot of people back then didn't want to have anything to do with real estate, didn't want to invest in it. And if they had real estate, um, they either couldn't afford it anymore um, or they were so in such a hurry to get rid of it, even if they could afford it because they just thought, okay, something major is happening. How did you, how did you manage to understand that this is a huge opportunity, especially coming from a different country? 
Yeah, so I didn't come in not knowing anything about real estate, right? So I started investing back in Israel in 2005, and mm -hmm. I've already had that taste. I already uh, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and, and got hooked on, on real estate. And then I looked around, and like you said, I saw everybody running away. And the mentality I always have is if everybody go right, you go left, right? Just go against the, 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 the stream, go against the herd, uh, and you'll do better. And um, I looked around, and there were a lot of opportunity. The challenges were mostly about getting finances and getting funded. So um, obviously having an IT job and, and a nice salary was very helpful to get the mortgages. Uh, but we, like you said, we came from a different country. It's a different system. It's a different way of doing business. Um, so both my wife and I went and got licensed. So we'll get to know the system and know the rules and the laws and get access to the MLS because it's not that easy to get that if you're not a licensed agent. So um, we invested in our education and in, in our um, learning. And then when we were... Uh, confident enough with our knowledge, we just pulled the trigger. And it was just a great, great time to pull the trigger. That's amazing. So you, you take your wife and you say, hey, we are, we're moving to the U.S. We're moving to, to Plano. I think there's an opportunity there. Look, look around you. Look what's, you know, but on everyone else, how they behave and what's going on. I think there's a great opportunity. And you, you move there. Both of you get your license, you, you become brokers, and, and then what, what happens next? Yeah, so I'm an engineer, right, by training, by just the way I'm wired. So everything went to Excel files, right? And the numbers mm -hmm. made sense. They just the numbers made sense. So we went and we bought the first one and then the second one and then the third one and kept making sense up until somewhere in 2013 when the market kind of rebounded and, well, things stopped making sense. Right. Uh, somewhere along the way, life happens, right? Kids, careers, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, my turning point was really in 2015 when we had a, one of our properties we needed to do foundation. So in North Texas, all the sand here is, uh, all the land is, uh, is sandy. So every property in North Texas is, is one of three conditions have foundation problems, had foundation problems, or will have foundation problems, right? So, because of the sand. Yes, because it, it just settles and it shifts. So we fixed the foundation. Uh, the challenge is when you raise a 1970s house, all the cast iron plumbing underneath it was held by the soil. And now there's nothing to hold it. So it all crumbled underneath us. So that doubled pretty much the cost because we had to do completely new plumbing for the house. And then the same year, we had a hailstorm that took out the roof. And then um, we had insurance, but you still have deductibles, right? And we had a water heater burst, which took out the flooring. And we had a garage door that went out. And another property needed a fence. And another property needed an AC unit. And I'm looking around, and between, I don't know, um, July and, and December, pretty much, I had to cut about $45,000 worth of checks. And wow. that just wipes away years of cash flow. And I'm looking at my wife and I say, look, this is just not scalable. If we had 10 more properties that required those kinds of uh, expenses, that wouldn't work. So 
um, that just was a realization that, yes, you get $100, $200, dollars a month cash flow from a property, but then, and everything's fantastic for a year, two, three, and then suddenly $4,000, $5,000 expense. So, and, and how many homes did you, uh, how many homes did you own at that point? Uh, we didn't go too big. We were at about four or five doors at that mm-hmm. point. Um, so it wasn't too much, but it was enough to cost me $45,000. Right? So that's where the scalability, if I had to do $100,000, that would be really a problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you stand there and you realize, okay, I have four or five or, or five properties and it just, it's not scalable. And then you decide, you talk to your wife and you decide to pivot and you realize, okay, this is, I thought that that would be the right way. And it's just, I'm guessing it's moving a little, a little bit slower and it costs so much money and it wipes, it's, it can, you can easily wipe out an entire, you know, cash flow of an entire year, if not more. Yeah, that's correct. And, and I'm a very risk adverse person, right? Don't get me wrong. There was quite a bit of equity built in those years, mm-hmm. right? Between 2008, nine and, and, and 2015, a lot of equity got built into these properties, but the cash flow and the fact that I had to cut $45,000 that came out of my account was not going to work for me going forward. Um, if you look at it, um, real estate or market, always real estate, right? Because um, it, market is just gambling. And um, we lost, the stock market just lost every concept that it had at the beginning. It was a way for business owners to get cheap financing and for investors to buy a piece of a business based on the fundamentals, how much that mm-hmm. business brings in, how much the profits are, and so on. But if you look at the stock market today, you have, and let's talk about the most uh, um, attractive uh, stocks, Apple, for example. Right, 18 months ago, the stock was like 96, 97. It's now over 190, right? The company didn't double the sales. The company didn't cut in half the expenses. Their net profits didn't grow double, triple in 18 months. So where's that valuation coming from? And that valuation comes from the fact that we lost any connection to the fundamentals, right? There's a lot of hype and hope built into that Mm -hmm. price point. And I tell, you know, anyone, anyone that tells me I prefer the stock market, I say, well, go to Vegas, put it on red. You'll get your answer faster. That's what yeah, I, in chances. Yeah, I agree. And, and it's enough today if one company mentions blockchain or, or any other one of those buzzwords out there or, or, or say we are going to start this new division um, and, you know, to explore new technologies. And all of a sudden it's, you know, the stock. It rises, and it's. I think a lot of it is based on the perception of the company, exactly. not so much about what's happening there. And I think another interesting difference between real estate and the stock market is that when it comes to um, your ability to actually have an impact on the profitability, is close to zero. What can you do as a minority, you know, shareholder? You can do nothing but watch and see what happens and try to time the market. You know, when to buy and where to sell. But if you own a property you actually can bring a, do it yourself if you can, or bring a property management company to reduce the expenses. You can implement a value add program and increase the rents if you're in the right you know, market, if the, if the property, if the rents are under market. So there are many ways of impacting your bottom line and you just, you don't have that. You're completely 
you have no control over it, basically, when it comes to the stock market. And, and it, it, not even the minority shareholders are, are hopeless. Uh, also, there's company directors. I work for publicly traded companies uh, like GameStop and NCR and JCPenney and, and some other ones. And any correlation between how the company was doing and how the stock was doing is random. Right? One rumor floats around completely baseless, right? Can drop mm-hmm. the stock dramatically. So, exactly. um I'm a control freak. I can't <laughs> handle that. It's not for me. So real estate is really my preference. And when I got to the point of, okay, this doesn't work for me, then I reverted back to my engineering uh, um, upbringing and I did a very thorough research, right? I looked at anything from um, non-real estate, right? Day trading, Forex, commodities, oil and gas, uh, um, gold and silver and so on. And then I also looked at all the other types of real estate, medical, retail, office, land, and and niche markets, industrials, and so on. And multifamily is the one that made the most sense to me. I'm in Texas, right? So I had a lot of conversation with friends that are heavy into oil and gas. And the one thing that prevented me from going into oil and gas was really about uh, industry disruption, right? Every year there is Billions of dollars, billions with a B, invested trying to disrupt the energy industry. Find, right. Finding alternative energy resources, finding uh, better ways, more efficient ways to do solar, hydrogen, and so on yep. and so on. So you're going to invest in something that there's billions of dollars investing against you every year. So that's, that's my take on oil and gas. Um, but multifamily is where I landed and made the most sense to me for a few reasons, right? The first one, talking about disruption, it doesn't matter if you walk to work, ride your bicycle to work, drive, or fly, you still need a place to sleep. It doesn't matter if you go out to eat or Uber delivers to your home, you still have to a place to sleep, right? right. It doesn't right. matter what industry is going to be disrupted by technology, at the end of the day, People need to put their heads down on a pillow and go to sleep in their home place. So um, that's one of the industries that's going to be the hardest to disrupt. Um, That's one reason. The other reason is we're in the middle of a major generational shift. Um, If you look at the United States, we have, what, 320, 330 million people, give or take? Yep. Um, Yep. Out of those, take away kids and people over 70, 80, right? You're down to about 200 and... 30 million to 20. Uh, Sounds about right. So out of 220 million, you got about 75 million millennials, 77 million millennials, right? And we all know what millennials, people talked about millennials enough, right? They don't want to buy, they want to rent, they have student debt, they've been traumatized in the last recession. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, billion reasons, doesn't matter what it is, but they have a strong preference to rent. And then you have another 75 million baby boomers. Baby boomers, just yeah. just had enough. They don't want to mow the grass, right. clean the gutters, fix the dishwasher. They want to be catered for, right? They want to be cared for. They want to be pick up the phone. My dishwasher doesn't work and somebody will show up and fix it, right? So that's 115-something million out of 200-and-something million um, that have a strong preference to rent. And that's not going anywhere. So that's really where um, it's a big driver for me to make that decision, okay, multifamily. 
And then the last factor is risk, right? So when my single family is needed a check out of the pocket, right? It came out of my own account, right? I had to take care of it. I had, if I have a vacancy, I have to pay the, the mortgage. I have to pay the insurance. I have to pay the bills. I have to pay a real estate agent. Uh, it's 100% risk to me. And there is mm-hmm. always vacancy. Yeah. Of course. And then at, at that point, when you understand, when you make the decision to make that shift from single family homes to multifamily, besides the obvious advantages of moving to that space that we just discussed, what, was, what did you feel at that point? Did you feel that you maybe started in the, with the, in the wrong path or you say, you know what, I've done that. I had to learn that lesson and I'm moving to the right to the, to the right path, I'm, I'm going through the right product? Were you hesitant or scared to do something a little bit bigger than single family homes? What, what was going on in the back of your head? So I'm the kind of person that takes his time and research and mm-hmm. figure out and do the legwork and really understand what I'm getting into. Um, my underwriting Excel file is one of the most comprehensive ones around and I've been... Uh, um, given compliments from official underwriters of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and so on. So I, I've built a, some, a, a base of knowledge that gave me the confidence that I understand what I need. And then once I have that confidence, I'm a person that just takes action, right? It might take me a little while to get to that point because I need my education. I need to understand. I can't take just somebody else's Excel file and just trust it. I have to really understand every formula, every number, where it's coming from. But once I understand it, there's no stopping. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's really how I got started. Thin is, it's a big boy's industry. Right? Oh, yeah. It's not easy <laughs> to get into. So um, I, you know, I did a lot. I sent emails and phone calls and it's just, I just faced a wall. Right? It was very frustrating trying to get into this thing and, and you just can't. What do you mean by you face the wall? Did nobody get back to you? Like, how, how was it? Could you describe the experience? Yeah, so it's very frustrating, right? You, you call a broker and they either don't call, they don't pick up or they don't return your call or you send an email and there's crickets and um, even the ones that you, you do get on the phone with or get a face-to-face with, I tell you, yeah, yeah, great. And I wrote your criteria down and then they disappear and you never hear back from, or you get what the, the masses get, right? You just get a blast in an email that you know 100,000 other people got. And by then it's too late, right? In the yeah. seller's market, it's too late. If it's in the masses email, it's too late. So I did find a backdoor. Right. I don't remember which podcast I was listening to that gave that advice, but it was a great advice. And that is, I've built a financial portfolio, big, big folder. And it had all of our bank accounts and our retirement accounts and our real estate holdings and, and everything we owned, right? And a little bit background about me and background about my wife and, 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 and our partners. And mm-hmm. Really, that's how we built this really thick book. And I went out to a commercial mortgage broker and I told him, okay, look, this is everything I can tell you about myself financially. Can you please underwrite me for a size of transaction for multifamily? 
And they did that and came back with whatever the number is, a million, million, five, I don't remember by now. And, um, and, and then I told them, you know what, do me one more favor. Now pick up the phone to like three or four of your real estate agents you're working with and tell them I'm ready. Tell them I got the money, tell them I'm approved or pre-qualified call, whatever you want to go. But talk to the guys that are doing business out there and tell them you can vouch for me. And that opened doors. Interesting. Um, you're still not going to be the first or the fifth phone call, but you start getting those uh, um, to see those properties a few days before they go on the mass market. And, and, and that gives you a little bit of an advantage, but not too much. Interesting. So you basically, you knew that that guy was familiar with other brokers in the area and, and, and you just wanted to get, you know, to see the property before they, they mass market it. That, I mean, that's huge to be, to start in real estate and, and see properties before everyone else does. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So that's a good strategy. It's a little backdoor that, that you can yeah. leverage. Um, and then, um, but it still was not good enough, right? Because the in a seller's market, the good deals that come through usually disappear within two, three days after the sell, the broker makes a few phone calls. That's about pretty much it. That's what we're, we're getting into, right? With 500 units, we're just getting near that space of being the first few phone calls of the broker, mm-hmm. right? And if it's the right deal, those disappear within the first five phone calls. So comes to uh, banging my head against the wall with multiple brokers and seeing properties that just don't underwrite. Um, I said, you know what? I give up. I'm going to find it myself. <laughs> so um, like I said, I'm a licensed broker. I knew what the drill is, right? Um, so I started sending postcards, yellow letters, cold calling, um, I spoke to a few owners along the way, but it was, uh, um, you know, they're not stupid. They know the market is hard. So if they're not really motivated to sell, they just threw numbers kind of like, let's see if you're stupid enough to pick this number, <laughs> right? And pay me that. Um, so <laughs> obviously that didn't work <laughs> out. Um, but one day I kind of uh, got a phone call from a guy that got our letter and um he said he's got a property in Salina, Texas. And we started chatting a little bit and he invited me to see the property. So I was excited, right? I come out, he's 80 something years old. Um, Been a custom home builder for for decades. And he built that property himself. I immediately recognized that he has a huge emotional connection to the property. He built it. It's his baby. At eight years old, he's still going out there and tinkering and fixing door handles and, and, wow. and moving things around. <laughs> he had the blueprints of the property because he built it. He knew what everything is. Um, but I also immediately recognized that he is underperforming in the management side. So the property was not destroyed. It's, it was beautiful. It was a 2007 built granite countertop. Black appliances, really beautiful property, but the guy would let their uh, his tenants pay on the twenty, twenty fifth, sometimes skip a month, 
Uh, wow. uh, he, he had tenants in there from 2007, right? And that was 2016 already that he hasn't raised rent on. His philosophy wow. was as long as they're in and they're paying rent, I'm not raising rent. I was like, okay. Um, leasing was done by a local realtor. So he was just really, and he had no debt. So, you know, he's still making money, uh, uh, but not nearly enough as he could. So I recognize that we can go into this with not a lot of in CapEx investment. Uh, just bring our processes, bring our management team and, and just turn this thing around and make it really shine. So um, I started talking to him and he's World War II generation. If I could make deals with people like him all day long, you know, he's the generation of a handshake and, and it's mm -hmm. done. His word was solid, right? I could have written that contract on a paper napkin and it would still be good. Um, so he started telling me about his history and um, we sat down and talked and I think it's been like two, three hours and, and all I do is not, right? <laughs> and inject a, a few words here and there because he was just going at it and went all the way back telling me about how he was a paper boy in, in Washington when he was a young <laughs> and, uh, um And it's just, you got to work the relationship, right? If anything, if, if, if I need to pick one word to describe this business, it's relationship. This entire industry is built on, on relationships. And um, so we kind of started bonding and, and I was listening to him and he was telling me and um, then he got interested in Israel and the fact that I came from Israel and we had a whole conversation about that. And um, he wandered off to how millennials are destroying the world. And <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Their favorite um, topics. I know some people love to talk about that. <laughs> So, but we really got connected and we really mm -hmm. started to build that relationship. And then not only that, we got a, a, a great opportunity to buy this property. We also ended up agreeing on a seller financing. And not only we got a seller financing with great terms, he also let me come in with less equity in, right? So our down payment was about 15%. How did you manage to convince him to do that? Well, he's actually, after we spoke for a few hours, he's the one that actually came up with the, yeah, we can do on a financing, right? And, and the terms he gave me right out of the gate were really great. So <laughs> I didn't have a lot to argue over there. What I did tell him is, look, I got the money to give you for the down payment, but I want to keep some cash for operations, right? And make sure that if I need to fix something, I have the reserves and so on. So he was, at this point, it was, again, relationship-based, right? So he realized that he can trust me and that I'm going to deliver. Um, then um, he agreed to do that. And we, what we did is built a little bit of a transaction in a way that I come in with 15%, but every quarter I'm going to drop uh, uh, an extra payment towards the, the principal. So um, that was a, a really a great transaction to work. And uh, we came in, we brought our own management, and we believe in using the carrot, not the stick, right? So instead of mm -hmm. coming in guns blazing, uh, pay on time or you're out and so on. But we just came in and said, you know what? 
uh, the old guy let you pay whenever you want, pretty much. Uh, if you pay on or before the first, and I think it was like either January or February that we did that, uh, you get into a contest and you get a 40-something inch LED TV. Interesting. That's I've never heard that. That's an interesting approach. Well, I bought it for like $200 on Black Friday. <laughs> I knew I'm going to do that, right? That was a good deal. So I bought it for like $200 <laughs> and you'd be surprised two-thirds of the property paid before the first. <laughs> they all wanted the TV. Yeah. So since then, we've been doing that with every one of our properties. Uh, we usually keep that to the December, January timeframe, right? Um, but as a as a ownership and, and operation philosophy, we really believe in taking care of our residents. Mm-hmm. Right? We like to build a sense of community. We like to give them... Uh, movie tickets and and gifts and we have popcorn machines so we tell the kids to come get popcorn after school and and we just had a pool party in one of our properties so so we really try to build a sense of community a sense of this is your home yeah and that's great because people don't only they're not only looking for you know to be in four walls and that's it they're looking to belong to a place they're looking for that sense of community to feel that they're home and if you just go to a certain to a building with with tons of tenants and you come and go and that's it it doesn't give them that extra feeling um and that's it, it it's that's a great way to retain also tenants yes. that's very interesting that property that you bought from that war veteran um was that your first multifamily deal yes that was my first multifamily deal interesting and how many units was it 22 22 and this veteran, this guy, was did he ask you about your experience? Was he worried that 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 you know that's basically your first deal, or how did he? What did he do? Well, it wasn't really my first deal in real estate, right? So yeah, I've had right. real estate background to show for, but mm-hmm. part of that relationship building and part of that emotional connection that he had in the property. Um, what I told him and what he offered is that he'll back me up. And I think six months after we bought the property, he kept going up there tinkering with things. I let him <laughs> keep a set of keys and he could go into the office or the shop and, and, and replace things and fix things. And it, Why was, not? it was just, uh, um, it was just a great relationship to work with. Mm-hmm. But after six months, he picks up the phone and called me and said, you know what? Looks like you guys know what you're doing. <laughs> and, and that's yeah. really where he started stop reducing his frequency in the property until at some point he just, you know, didn't bother anymore. Um, and, and that's kind of like, again, having him on site, it's an extra set of eyes. It helps with uh, the, the anxiety residents usually get when we do ownership transition. So it was a win-win for everyone. Plus, he got to go out to his special place, his little shop. This guy was amazing. His shops were uh, um, so tidy and neatly organized. Uh, So that's really, uh, uh, it was a win-win for everyone. That's great. It's it's really interesting how he, he actually, he saw that as his baby and he wanted to make sure that his baby is in good hands, that it's not deteriorating, that everyone is, you know, is doing well. Um, that's very interesting. Do you know if he owned 
if he owned anything, if he owned in that area, or was it his only building? That was his only building. He had mm -hmm. a, a couple more commercial uh, um, properties that he sold before. So that was, unfortunately, that was his only and the last one. Yeah, yeah, I see you're smiling. So, I, and I know what you're thinking. If he had more properties, I would have just bought all of his multifamily portfolio. And Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's um, he's a pretty unique seller. That's for sure. You you don't you don't see. I mean, you see a lot of people that are um, attached emotionally attached to their properties, but to come back after the sale and to still to to take physically take care of the property. Yeah, that's pretty unique. You'll find that. More in the mom and pop owners in the smaller properties, mm -hmm. it, it's a little bit more common there, uh, but you won't see that in the big properties. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's easier to get attached to something that is smaller um, than to a big kind of a, a monstrous 200 unit because you usually don't manage it yourself. Even though I have seen big properties that are managed by two or three partners and usually one one of the properties that I, that I was uh, walking, I think it was five months ago, they just, they couldn't take it anymore and the partnership is dissolved because you try and hold on to, I think their portfolio was over a thousand units and they did it wow. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So you try and do that with two other guys for, you know, a decade and at some point you would not want to look at the property anymore. You just want to, all, all, you, all you would want to do at that point is get your money and get out. Yeah. So that basically, um, you know, now you're, you own 505 units. Yeah. Um, so that was the deal that kind of opened the door for you. And so now you own two, you know, 22 units and how did it, how did it? Ex how did you expand from that point? Yeah. So the the best description I have for when people ask me how is this business is a snowball on a roller coaster. Mm. That's that's the best description I have. <laughs> right. You have the snowball aspect of the more you do, the more opportunities come across your desk. Right. So as soon as we closed that twenty two, we got the oh, so you're a closer. You're not just a tire kicker. So come take a look at this and come take a look at that. And I got the pocket list in here and there. Um, and then the roller coaster aspect of things is you could be working hard trying to find a deal for like two, three months, find nothing. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself with four contracts at the same time. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go. Yeah. A snowball and a roller coaster. That's the best description I could find. That's that's a great line. I might even uh, name the the episode. Snowball on a roller coaster. <laughs> After yeah, no, that's great. Um, so and that's basically what happened. You just started just owners and brokers started to reach out to you and come take a look at that and come take a look at, at this property and it, you just continued buying properties from that point. Yeah. So the very next one was uh, through our property management company. Um, they saw a broker they know uh, um, walk around the property right next one that they, to the one they were managing at the time and say, hey, what's going on? And say, well, the sales are thinking to sell. Oh, we got the perfect buyer for you, right? And they made that connection. Um, and then it, it really rolls from there. Uh, we're at a point where once you get a certain density in, the, in a town, then people start reaching out to you, right? Brokers that wouldn't give me the time of day two years ago are calling in today. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I saying, Hey, I got this and I got that and I start seeing a lot more deals than I used to before. 
So uh, that, that's really is the more you do, the more you get exposed to other opportunities. I've built relationship with a group of, of brokers that I got to the point where I can talk to one of my brokers and say, I want that property. Go get it. Right. And they'll go and, and, and find the owners and hunt them down and, and see if we can provide an unsolicited offer. Um, because we believe in paying fair prices, just not stupid prices. Right. Mm. And then that's, that's really where the problem is. So, uh, um, I think my ratio is about 200 to one. So for every 200 opportunities that come uh, uh, across my desk, about 150 of them fail on the smell test, right? You run through a thousand. Uh, what, what's the smell test? Well, you run through a few thousands of those. You look at the uh, the offer and you know immediately if it's going to work or not, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's so many rainbows and lollipops built into that pro forma that you can't even see the property, then you know it's not going <laughs> to yeah. work. Right, um, and then fifty of those go into our Excel files, and about five of those actually pan out, and we send out offers to get one under contract. So, just like a big funnel. Got it. And do you underwrite your deals? Yes, I do. So you're very hands-on. You make sure that you know the 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 price is the right price, and 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 do you um, buy properties only in in Texas? So far, we have. It does not mm-hmm. mean we're not open for other markets. It's just that all the opportunities we had a chance to come across that made sense to us were here in Texas. Uh, Got it. But, but we will look at other properties. Thing is, though, I can't come up and take, I don't know, 30-unit property in Jacksonville, Florida right now. Right? It's too far away and it's too small of a property for me to take on. But get me 300 units in Jacksonville, Florida, we'll talk. Right, so it it got to the point that we need a certain scale in order to open a new market. And Joseph, if you could um, look at look at your twenty year old self and give yourself an advice, any advice, what what would it be? And you probably were at that point um, being in Israel myself. I know that at that point you were probably in the army in back in Israel. Um, But what would you tell yourself? Two thousand eight is the bottom by everything you can. (laughs) <laughs> but assuming I can't do that, uh, I would just tell myself to skip singles. Uh, a lot of people have that concept that they need to go through that linear education process. And trust me, even if you own 30 single families, it does not prepare you to own 20 unit multifamily. It's just a different animal. So I would tell myself, skip that phase, go straight to multifamily. Mm-hmm. Got it. And um, where can people find you? So we have a website, uh, ebgtx.com. It's five letters. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. And my phone is there. My email is there. Uh, everything you need to know about us is over there. Got it. Perfect. Well, thank you, Joseph, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I think you bring great energy and I love your story. And And, and that's what I like about the Israeli way of thinking it's always outside of the box thinking what we can do differently, um, how we can be different in order to get to where we want to get. And I, I, I really like how, you, how you've done that and how you kept thinking and trying different methods and seeing what was working, what's not working and pivoting and not just, you know, being stuck in where you were or, or doing what everyone else is doing just because everyone else is doing it. That's one of the things I love this industry the most, right? It, it's... I get to think outside the box. I get to be creative. I get to build transactions 
seven different ways until I find what's the right loan for this property. What's the right strategy? Are we going to raise equity? Are we going to take a, a hard money loan? Are we going to take a bridge loan or permanent? Are we going to use a private equity or private investors, right? There's a lot of variables and we get to kind of figure out the best solution, right? So um, problem solving is really what we do. Yeah. And as an engineer, I'm sure that that's uh, second nature for you. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you again for being on my show and I hope you have a good one. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you so much for choosing to spend the last 30 minutes or so over your life listening to my podcast. You can find the episode's show notes on iTunes and on my website, www.ellieperlman.com. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast on iTunes. This is very important to me and I really appreciate it if you do it. On the next episode, Melting in 100 Degree Texas Heat to Get the Deal, I speak with Frank Rolf, a leading investor in mobile home parks. Frank will share what he was willing to do to get a deal in his early days as an investor. It's an amazing story, and I'm sure you will enjoy listening to it. Have an amazing and meaningful day. Let's connect again on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.